If you're able, would you remain standing for the reading of God's Word? We're turning to Psalms 119, the book of Psalms, chapter 119, verse 121. This is the I.N. portion of the psalm. Again, every letter, every verse in this portion starts with the letter I.N., with a, with a word with the letter I.N. is one of those letters that the nobody really knows how to say it. It's some sort of guttural that is supposed to be expressed from the back of your throat, and yet it has very little sound, and, you know, we do our best, but nobody really knows how to how it used to be said. Psalm 119, verse 121, this is the word of our Lord. I have done justice and righteousness. Do not leave me to my oppressors. Be surety for your servant for good. Do not let the proud oppress me. My eyes fail from seeking your salvation and your righteous word. Deal with your servant according to your mercy and teach me your statutes. I am your servant. Give me understanding that I may know your testimonies. It is time for you to act, O Lord, for they have regarded your law as void. Therefore, I love your commandments more than gold, yes, than fine gold. Therefore, all your precepts concerning all things I consider to be right. I hate every false way. This is the word of our Lord. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, we pray that you open our eyes to see glorious things concerning you. From this passage, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Have you ever been around a bragger? Somebody's always talking about themselves. That person who's always trying to one-up you when you're telling a story. You You tell a story and they say, oh yeah? Well, I went to school... Uphill both ways in the snow in Florida. Uh, That that, that bragger, the one that has to be talking big. Uh, The bragger is not someone that you want to be around. Is that fair to say? That uh, that person is not the one that you want to be around. That's not the person that you want to be as your closest friend. And I'm saying this because this stanza in verse 121 starts with what sounds like a brag on the part of the psalmist. He says, I have done justice and righteousness. I have obeyed you. I have been faithful to your word. I've done the things you've asked me to do, Lord. But as you see, as I hope you see, this is not a brag as we think of bragging. This is a humble brag, if there is such a thing, based on the sufficiency of the grace of God to equip the saints to obey God's word. God gives us the grace that we need in order to obey his word. We'll see that this is true in a moment. This section starts with the psalmist teaching us that all of life is lived in the hope of the return of the Lord. In verse 121, the psalmist is confident that he has been blameless. He says, I have done justice and righteousness. Do not leave me to my oppressors. And this is not a proud flaunting of self-righteousness. He's not saying, Lord, on my own, I've, I've obeyed you. On my own, I've been righteous. On my own, I've done all the things you've asked me to do. This is a grace-driven obedience 
to the word of God because of the work of the spirit in his heart. And that's why he asks God to remain faithful to him and deliver him from those who are oppressing him. In the second half of the verse, he says, do not leave me to my oppressors. He knows he needs the Lord to remain faithful to, to, to him. In a sense, his own obedience, the psalmist's own obedience, is a display of God's faithfulness to him. We see the same dynamic in Paul's writings when he says that we are to uh, work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We are to do what needs to be done to grow in our sanctification. We are to do what needs to be done to obey God because... It is God who is working in us to will and to do of his good pleasure. The psalmist says, I have done justice and righteousness, and implying this, because you, God, have given me the grace to do so. This is grace-driven obedience. And yet, it looks like there's a quid pro quo. For a long time, that was Pastor Lehman's favorite expression, quid pro quo, which just means something for something. An exchange. Because here the, the psalmist says, I have done justice and righteousness. Because I've obeyed you, then don't leave me to my oppressors. Is he asking something from God? He says, hey, I've done this. Now you have to do this for me. I obeyed. Now deliver me. Is there a quid pro quo here? Is that an exchange? Is the psalmist saying that? And we can say with, with clear affirmation that this is an obvious Maybe. <laughs> or better said, it is a yes and a no. Both, I think both things are true here. To the no point, is this an exchange? Is the psalmist bargaining with God? Well, in one sense, no, he's not. Because true biblical obedience is the result of the grace of God in the life of the believer. You only obey God because God is giving you the grace. God is giving you the strength. God is giving you the power to do so. It is His mercy, His kindness, His compassion, His grace working in you to do the very things that He calls you to do. That being the case, all of obedience is non-meritorious. That's all to say that, that when we obey, we're not earning something. It's not like something we're doing something valuable that then we can use to exchange with God for some sort of blessing because whatever we do that's good is God doing in us and doing through us. So it's non-meritorious because it is God's work in us. God is being faithful to his own work in this life, in the life of the believer, when he blesses the believer's obedience. So, no, this is not an exchange. The, 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 this is not a quid pro quo. The author is not saying, the psalmist is not saying, hey, because I did all these good things apart from you, now you owe me a blessing. I like to play this. I have two games on my phone, two video games. I confess. <laughs> one of them is a bunch of fishies playing together. That's the one I like the most. And you have to do some things there, accomplish some tasks to earn some rewards that allow you to go to the next phase and so on. But that's not what the author is meaning. He's not playing a video game of life, and the more coins he collects on his own, then he can exchange that for some blessing from the Lord. So, no, this is not an exchange based on some, some, some self-righteous obedience on the part of the believer. On the other hand, God does promise to bless those that are obedient to God's word. 
That's true throughout the Bible. For example, in Psalm 103, verses 17 and 18, the psalmist says, The mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him. See the condition there? He's merciful to those who fear Him, and there is more. And His righteousness to children's children, to such as keep His commandment, His covenant, and to those who remember His commandments to do them. So there is a, 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 there is a way, a measure in which our obedience receives the Lord's blessing, but it's not one that uh, we demand from the Lord. The psalmist is not demanding that God bless his own merit. The psalmist is pleading that God will pleading that God will be faithful to God's own work in his life. In essence, the psalmist is saying, "I've obeyed you by your grace. You ha- you are the one doing this work in my lives. I'm, I've done righteousness because you've given me this, the grace to do this. so." Bless yourself, Lord, for your work in my life. You be glorified as you bless me because of my obedience. So he prays that God would deliver him from his oppression on the basis of his obedience. But his obedience is only obedience because God worked in him to will and to do of the good pleasure of God. So he prays that God would deliver him from the oppressor. And the oppressor of the believer is the proud. In verse 122, the psalmist says, Be surety for your servant for good. Do not let the proud oppress me. Do you see anything peculiar about this verse? Look at it if you have a Bible open in front of you. Is there anything different in this verse than, uh, than the other verses that we've looked so far? It's the only verse in the whole psalm that does not refer to the Bible, to the Word of God. And we saw in the beginning there were eight words that the psalmist uses to refer to the Bible. And this is the only one that does not use any of the eight words. And yet, biblical truth is just, in, is just infused in this, in this verse. And we see here that the oppressor of the believer is the proud. The proud is the insolent, the arrogant, the presumptuous. The, this particular word is used six times in the psalm to describe those who oppress and persecute the Believer. Now listen for a moment how Habakkuk defines who a proud person is. It's a terrible definition. In Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 5, Habakkuk says this, Indeed, because he transgresses by wine, he is a proud man, and he does not stay at home. Talking about the proud, because he enlarges his desires as hell, and he is like death and cannot be satisfied. He gathers to himself all nations and heaps up for himself all peoples. We hear this description and think that we will never be part of this group. This is a hellish description. That's who the proud is. But notice that the man, the, the, the person who is proud, the main characteristic of the proud is rebelling against God. That's what, in essence, what the proud person is. One rebels against God. And we do that every time we sin. We are counted among the proud every time we sin against God and against His Word. The proud is always in opposition to God's Word and to God's people. And when we sin, we're doing exactly that. Rebelling against God is always a prideful attitude. Independence from God is always a prideful attitude. And the psalmist pleads with God that God be the surety or the guarantee for him. That to be the surety is the, the, the surety is a person who undertakes undertakes responsibility for a debt or the fulfillment of an engagement by another 
but another. So have you ever heard of co-signing a loan? It means that you put your name there and if the person doesn't pay, you are on the hook for it. Don't do it, by the way. But that's what being surety is. It's promising that you're going to pay somebody else's debt if they don't pay. This is another way to plea with God that he would deliver him from the enemies of those who obey God's word. He says, God, be that down payment. Be that guarantee that I'm going to be delivered. He's asking God to be the down payment of the good results in his life. He's asking that God himself be the pledge of goodness in his life like he did in the covenant with Abraham. Remember when God made a covenant with Abraham and he's going to swear allegiance to Abraham and he's uh, as, using just human language. God was looking for someone he could swear by and finding none who was greater than him, he swore by himself and promised that he himself, God himself would be the guarantee that all the promises that he made to Abraham would come to pass. And he, God, walked in between the, the animals who had been slaughtered saying, be it to me, be like, like this to me if I break my covenant with Abraham. That's what the, 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 the psalmist is praying, that God will be that surety, the guarantee that he's not going to fall prey to the oppressor. And I think he doesn't mean just the oppressor won't kill him, but that he's not going to betray the Lord as he's persecuted and oppressed by the proud. And the psalmist keeps on coming to God for deliverance from the oppression of the, this life because God is the only one who can provide such deliverance. In verse 123, it says, my eyes, shall, my eyes fail from seeking your salvation and your righteous word. Throughout the psalm, the common theme of the psalm, we have the word of God, but also persecution. It's, it's persecution that led the psalmist to write this particular psalm. And he keeps on coming back to God and coming back to God for deliverance from that oppression. Because he knows that God is the only one that can uh, really, uh, give him freedom from that oppression, deliverance from that oppression. He prays, my eyes are longing for salvation. They fail from seeking your salvation. And salvation is, again, a reference to deliverance. From the oppressor, those who are persecuting the psalmist because of his obedient life to the word of God. The psalmist describes the life of the believer as a life of longing for God's deliverance. The ESV does a better job in translating this passage. It says, my eyes long for your salvation and for the fulfillment of your righteous promises. The believer longs for the blessed hope of the return of Christ and the resurrection of the body. He he knows that this life, she knows that this life is not all there is. She knows that this is not the best life. Do you understand that? If this is your best life, you're going to hell. I hope you understand what that means. If, this, if, if you think that you're going to live your best life now, it means that the life to come has to be worse than this one. Which is hell. But you, brothers and sisters, you are going to heaven. Your best life is not now. And the psalmist is looking for that deliverance. And for us as a believer, looking for that return, longing for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now the psalmist was looking, for the, to, looking forward to the coming of the Messiah, who was the fulfillment of all the promises that were given to God's people. All the way from Genesis 15, 315 on. His whole life, the psalmist, whoever wrote this psalm, had heard of the promises of God. Even to the serpent, when God told the serpent, 
The, the seed of the woman will crush your head. To Abraham, when God told Abraham, I will be your God and you, you will be my people. And through your seed, I will bless the nations. Through Moses, when God said, a, a greater prophet is coming. Through the prophets, when God said, Emmanuel will restore you. So his eyes long to see the fulfillment of these promises. Remember, this, this is likely a post-exilic psalm that is, it was written after Israel was brought back from the Babylonian captivity. So we're talking about somewhere in the 500s to the 400s. So it's been, what, 13, 1400 years since God had promised to be a God to him to, and, to, and for him to be his people. That God had promised to bless all nations through the seed of Abraham. 1400 years. And he hadn't seen that yet. He was in a dry piece of dirt in the middle of the Middle East, dominated by a foreign power, longing for that promise to come to pass. Now think about it. What was going on? Sometimes we lose track of time. We think, oh, 13, 1400 years, that's nothing. But what was going on 1400 years ago? Right? In the 400s, in the 500s, in the 600s, a lot of bad stuff. <laughs> There's nothing like today. And a lot of things has happened in the last 14, 15 hundreds. And yet this psalmist kept on looking forward to the fulfillment of all those promises. His eyes longed to see Jesus. That was the desire of his heart, to see Jesus. For us, my brothers and my sisters, all these promises are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. The apostle says in 2 Corinthians, For all the promises of God in him are yes, and in him amen, to the glory of God through us. Brothers, sisters, our eyes have seen Jesus, and he's gloriously beautiful. All the promises have been fulfilled. Now we long for his return. We look back at the cross and we look back at the resurrection and we see Jesus and we long to see him again with our physical eyes at the resurrection. So we pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And as we look forward to the blessed hope of the resurrection, God gives us grace to live for his glory now. If you were able, would you turn to Titus chapter 2 for a second? Keep your finger there, if you can, and Solomon turns to Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. The Apostle Paul says this in, verse, uh, in Titus chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and the worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. The verb tenses are important here. The grace of God has appeared. Wherein? In the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the person of Jesus Christ, the grace of God has appeared. We look back and we see the grace of God. And yet, that grace of God who comes to us from the past encourages us to live looking to the future, to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. That future grace that's pulling us toward Christ. And notice as we look at at past grace, and as we look at future grace, grace teaches us something. Verse 12 says... That grace teaches us 
that denying ungodly and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Doesn't that match verse 121 of Psalm 119 when he says, I have done justice and righteousness? Why? Because the grace of God teaches me to do just that. And we look for Jesus coming back in verse 14 because he gave himself for us that we might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. So we live now, brothers and sisters, looking to the coming of Jesus Christ. But that looking forward doesn't cause us to forget the present. The future grace of Christ causes us to live now in obedience to the word of God. And that's how God wants us to live, in obedience to his word. Back to Psalm 119. We live all of life hoping for the return of Christ because God deals with us according to his covenant faithfulness. The reason we know that God is going to come back for us in Jesus Christ and that we're going to see him face to face where we shall be like him is because God has entered into a covenant with us and is always faithful to his covenantal promises to his people. In verse 124, we see that the psalmist knows that God has made a covenant with him. So he calls on God's covenant faithfulness that will never change. He says in verse 124, deal with your servant according to your mercy and teach me your statutes. And you say, there's nothing about covenant in this verse. Well, we find that dearest of words there, the word mercy, covenant faithfulness, loving kindness, uh, in the ESV, steadfast love is a special word that tells us that God has entered into covenant with us. That we are the objects of his love. And the psalmist pleads, pleads with God based on that faithfulness. I want you to notice that in verse 124 that the psalmist is being oppressed by the proud. As he is being oppressed by the proud, he wants to know God's word better. He says, God, act according to your faithfulness to me. Teach me. Your statutes. And notice also that he considers growing in knowledge of the word of God and the God of the word a result of God's covenant faithfulness. Says, God, be merciful to me. And then he says, Are you going to display that mercy, that faithfulness to me by teaching me about you? It's not by giving me a good life, not by delivering me from the enemy, but teaching me about you. God, you're faithful to me, and I want you to display that faithfulness to me by teaching me more about. You, Brothers and sisters, the believer is not proud as he looks for the return of Christ. Rather, he looks to the return of Christ as a servant of Christ. In verse 125, the psalmist says, I am your servant. Give me understanding that I may know your testimonies. Those who are servants of the Lord are the ones who are given more understanding of God's word. Those that know God better are not the ones who are independent from God. Those who receive teachings from the Lord are not the ones who see themselves as equal with God. Not those who are buddies with God. Not those who think they are advisors to God. Not those that think they are co-regents or they're ruling together with God. The psalmist says, servants only grow in understanding of the word of God. As we live life looking for the coming of Jesus Christ as servants of Christ... We grow in his knowledge. If you desire to grow in the knowledge of God and you feel like you're not growing, look for pride in your life. Because that's a killer of growth. 
in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And the more the believer lives in light of God's covenant faithfulness to him, the more he or she grows in the understanding of God's word, and the more that happens, the more he or she will be indignant or upset or mad or angry when the law of God is broken. Look how he says in verse 126. It is time for you to act, O Lord, for they have regarded your law as void. He wants God to punish those who break God's law. He is mad that the word of God has been disobeyed. He's angry that there are people who are not being faithful. And this is in the context of God's community, not in the wicked world out there, that have not been faithful to the word of God. How many of us get upset because the law of God is not being followed? What is it that you're insulted by in your life? What, what, what brings insult to you? What are the things that you go, I can't believe that happens? I'm mad. Personal affront? Attacks on something else that is important to you? The psalmist is upset that the word of God is being run through the muck. The psalmist is upset that people are not following the word of God. Brothers and sisters, the believer loves the word of God and holds it as more valuable than, most, than the most valuable thing that you can conceive of. In, ver, in verse 127, the psalmist says, Therefore, I love your commandments more than gold, yes, than fine gold. The, the most expensive, most valuable thing he could think of, he values the word of God more than that. And because the believer supremely loves the word of God, he or she considers, that is, thinks that all of it is righteous, is right. In verse 128, it says, Therefore, all your precepts concerning all, all things I consider to be right. I hate every false way. Uh, the Bible is objectively right. The Bible is objectively truth, true, dep- independent of what you think. No, you're too puny, all of us. Too puny, too insignificant to make any dent on the veracity or the truth of the Word of God. It is true whether you want it to be true or not. It's as simple as that. But here, the believer understands and accepts them all as right and lives according to it. In the believer's heart, there's no, the Bible says, but. That doesn't exist in the believer's mind. Because the word but has a powerful effect. It has a magical effect in which it deletes everything that goes before it. The Bible says it, and that is for those who, and, and the Bible says it, and, and that, is, that is it for those that believe who have been redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ. So we hold the Bible as right, as true, as perfect, as free of mistakes, as sufficient. And there is a, a, a backside to that. There is a corollary to that. There's another side of the coin. And the verse tells us that, again in verse 128, Therefore all your precepts concerning all things is, I consider to be right. And because of that, I hate every false way. If one loves the word of God and thinks that all of it is right, one must also hate all false ways. Notice the strength of the word. It's not refraining from believing what is false. It's not neutrality towards what is false. It's not even a general dislike for what is false. It's a hatred for what is false. And this hatred for what is false is informed, it informed hatred by the Bible. 
Now, so here, oh, I can't believe the pastor is telling us to hate. No, I'm not. The Bible is. Not me. The Bible. And how do we practice this hatred? How do we practice hatred? Well, we practice hatred by knowing the truth. We hate false ways. By knowing the truth. By combating what's false. By not being different to falsehood. In order to do that, you need to educate, educate yourself. Let me ask you this. You don't have to answer. What good book are you currently reading right now? As, one, as a believer in Jesus Christ who desires to grow, to grow, what good book are you reading right now? I'm not a reader. No problem. What book are you reading? It might take you three months to read a 50-page book, but what book, how are you growing? What are you bringing into your life to cause you to grow in the Lord? Are you participating in our own book study? Sunday school, Wednesday evening, I hate false ways. How are you going to know what the false ways are if you're not educating yourself in the Word of God? I don't have time. Well, you had time to get coffee this morning at the coffee shop. You have time to read a book. You have time to read the Bible. You have time to be in other places. Elders are especially called to this, to hate what is false. In Titus, Paul says, holding fast, talking about the elders, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught that he may be able to, by sound doctrine, both to exhort and convict those who contradict. And ultimately, this is a hatred that's driven by love. Love by, for the word of God. So let us then pursue what is true because we love the word of God and the God of the word. The God who is faithful to us as a result of His eternal covenant. So as we serve Him, as we love Him, as we follow Him, may we do that looking to the glorious return of our Lord, who is coming for us, brothers and sisters, whom we will see as He is in all His glory, because we shall be like Him. Praise the Lord, and let us pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let us pray together. Father, thank You for Your Word, and we pray that we be faithful to You through it. We pray that we would have true faith in our hearts, that we might hold on to what's true. Help us to be in love with you to the point that we hate what's false, and that we be courageous in exposing falsehood. Enable us to educate ourselves that we might know what is true, that we might be able to identify what is false. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.